looking at the old day. And got to learn languages and listen to what people say. And it's a lot more cool than what Stu and I did. Um, and it's kind of got fucked over from getting to do his job, but whatever. Um, Ian, thank you for joining us uh, tonight and uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. You want to give the uh, viewers or listeners a little bit more of an introduction about yourself, uh, if you'd like. Um, maybe talk about what years you were in the in the in the service, and um, and maybe a little bit about what you did after. Just yeah, a sure. broad overview. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, I joined the Air Force in February of two thousand eight, um, a little under a year after I graduated high school, because uh, there wasn't much else I could do with my life. Uh, I joined to become an airborne linguist, not really knowing what that was, but it sounded really cool. And they said they'd give me money. So I said, okay. Um, I did do that. I learned uh, Dari and Pashto. I went to the Defense Language, Defense Language Institute two separate times to learn those languages. And then I was a linguist on board Air Force Special Operations aircraft, um, primarily aboard different types of gunships. Uh, during my two deployments to Afghanistan, both of which were in um, 2011, just beginning of the year and sort of end of the year. Um, I did those two deployments. I stopped deploying after that. I got out in 2013. And when I got out, I went to uh, Columbia to study biology because it was sort of the fastest way I could get to apply to medical school, which I did after I graduated from Columbia. And then I went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh um from 2017 to 2021 and after i graduated i did in good residency um turned out i didn't really want to practice medicine the way i thought i did um so i now i sort of consult for various biotech people um i tutor here and there and i wrote a book hence we are talking yeah and, and your book is uh um it's it's out now what the taliban told me and that's that kind of relays some of your uh, is it it's more of your your personal experiences, right? And and how you interpret uh, kind of your being there in Afghanistan is that is that kind of how you know you kind of your place in that Afghan conflict, more or less. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a memoir, um, mm -hmm. which perhaps isn't evident to everyone based on what um, some feedback I've gotten. But it is definitely a memoir, and I mean, there's some thoughts on like the larger, um, you know place of the war in afghanistan but you know other people have written like much smarter books about that and i'm not i wasn't going to try and you know talk about that because I'm, I'm no expert of the total war or anything yeah and neither were our uh, our generals they weren't either so it's okay <laughs> i do talk about that i very much do talk about that in the book yeah they they they, they were not quite uh spun up on on the uh history or um all the uh you know tribal tribal divisions and and, and tribal uh well, just really any any of it at all for the entire I mean, twenty years. So yeah. I can guarantee you no more than probably most of them. But um, yeah, that, that's awesome, man. Um, so so you you enlist. Uh, you talk about not having a whole lot of opportunity. And that was in two thousand eight. You said that you enlisted in, in the Air Force. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, that was uh, kind of a rough time because uh, because I, I joined kind of for uh, much the same reason in twenty twenty eleven. Just lack of economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. um so so while you're in the air force um you know you, you get to go you get to go to monterey and you said you learned um uh, pashto is that right mm -hmm. yeah so um can you describe what it's like because I, I was uh i wasn't a linguist on board an aircraft so i was a signals intelligence analyst on board uh, the mc-12 which is a lot smaller and definitely not a gunship <laughs> um <laughs> so so 
so you de- you deploy and you actually get to deploy as a linguist. So mm-hmm. I, I rarely meet linguists that get to do their job, Ian. So um, <laughs> you, what you do. Yeah. 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 So can, can you tell me what that's like? I mean, you're you're flying missions in Afghanistan in 20, 2011. So well, what's a what's a mission like for a cryptologic linguist? Can you tell me? Well, so it's it's pretty different depending on the uh, the aircraft you're on, right? So I was on, so AFSOC has, you know, a few different types of plane, but you can basically lump it into gunships and then non-gunships as like transport planes. Uh, and so I, I've never even flown a mission on a transport plane because I, I never got qualified on them. But so gunship specifically as a linguist, you... Um, in Afghanistan, you're getting tasked to generally uh, special operations missions, so not just through ASOC, if it's Army guys or if it's Brits or it's Australians or whomever, but you're not, usually we weren't supporting sort of, you know, like Big Green or Big Blue or anybody. Um, gunships just like never really filled that purpose. So the mission could be anything, though. It could be sort of going and flying over some fob because somebody said, hey, you know, we're worried about you know, we got some chatter, there's going to be an attack tomorrow or something like that. And can, you can just hang out and, you know, provide overhead support. Okay, sure, we'll go do that. You know, maybe keep some people at bay. It could be um, recon. You know, there's a convoy going from point A to point B at about two and a half miles an hour because that's how fast convoys travel. And they want someone overhead to look for IDs or to look for an ambush or to be there in case something goes down. Um, or a fair amount of the time, you we would know that we were going into what was already a fight or what was very, very likely to be a fight, or we would be on a mission that was a sort of, you know, hanging out over a fob or over a convoy or whatever, and a tick, uh, troops in combat, you know, thing would happen and they'd say, okay, nope, go over there. And we'd go over there and um, deal with that. That is very different from the vast majority of what airborne linguists and Air Force do, which is fly aboard rivet joints, RC-135s, which are, you know, jumbo jets, that have a large number of linguists on board at any given point and they fly for many 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 hours at thirty thousand feet and like 500 miles an hour doing like big big picture strategic intel gathering everything i ever did was highly tactical and you know almost never did it exist past any individual mission i was on like very rarely did something i do matter the next day um as far as the whole intelligence picture thing went sure so, so as a linguist, you're on board this gunship, you know, um, so are you, I mean, obviously you're, you're doing signals intelligence. Um, I mean, are you just picking up in the general area? Are you trying to just, um, I mean, cause there's a million different types of signals intelligence out there, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so are you just like in the general vicinity? Are you doing like, uh, like denial like signals denial stuff are you actually actually interpreting what these people are saying no yeah i'm i'm just doing like near i call it near real time because there's a time from when i hear and understand to when i go tell somebody but what i'm doing is interpretation in real time because i'm you know processing it as soon as i hear it i'm not doing any and no one that on gunships or other sort of assault aircraft are doing what i would call real signals intelligence insofar as like no there's not denial and there's not there's not even like real cryptology stuff right this is in the book and it's like open source information that i was just listening to icon like that's it just push the talk like i'm not doing any cryptology i'm not listening to anything more complicated than you know a ham radio 
So uh, that's it. I'm just trying to find stuff. Yeah, it's generally area, right? It's generally like what a line of sight antenna can do um, and finding guys nearby who are talking about figuring out if they're talking about, you know, stuff that's relevant to me because line of sight, you know, cones are very strange. And if you're in a plane very high up, you could in theory hear something far away, but then you're trying to figure out what's, you know, in your little tiny area. And so when you're listening, Oh, sorry, Stu, I saw you step. I didn't mean to step on you there. Um, I've got one more question though, um, just from me and I'll let these other guys throw out because I, you know, I'm very much, you know, interested in that skill set. That's what I did too. So similar. Um, so when you're up there, you're getting, um, you know, radio chatter or, you know, however, whatever signals you're picking up up there. Um, and are, are you, what these guys are saying, um, at least when I was trained, you know, for Korean, you know, as much, you know, you're, we're listening to things and it's more like uh, station four, this is station five. Can you hear me? Station two, this is station five. Can you hear me? That's, I mean, that's literally like a huge chunk of, you know, mm-hmm. North Korean signals you know it's that's what you're interpreting and if you can pick that up it's like the same you know probably the same 50 to 100 phrases you know so how how hard is it especially coming from a program like pashto which they basically had to develop on the fly because it's a fairly illiterate people right um the pashtuns so they had to make this program because nobody really knew how to teach this language to a bunch of Westerners. Right. So, so what, what are you, what, what are they, what are they saying? I mean, what are the average like conversations going on, you know, uh, while you're in yeah. that place? Yeah, that's a good question. There is. So, you know, I went to Goodfellow and you must have, and, you know, you're exposed to all the other languages and my understanding Korean Russian is, my understanding is similar. You hear a lot of, you know, pilot A talking to pilot B, talking to ATC one, talking to whomever and, and all that. But Afghanistan, there isn't any of that, right? Like, and whatever there is, the ANA and, you know, we controlled all of that. So I'm not, I would have never listened to that. The Taliban does a fair amount of that, right? Dude A, asking dude B if he's around, like legitimately 10 times just yelling a dude's name, hoping he'll pick up. He never picks up. He waits a couple of minutes. He yells the name a bunch more. Yeah. Um, there's some of that, but there, for the most part, it's a lot of, it depends on when you, when you're flying. So my first appointment, I only flew during the day and you get a lot of sort of bullshit, like day-to-day chatter and that like dudes talking about traffic, talking about the weather. Yes. Talking about, you know, ops and enemy forces and battle happened yesterday and stuff like that. But you get a lot more just like generic bullshit. Cause, cause you have to remember these are dudes like they're just talking on the radio just to talk a lot of the time. If there's not a fight or something at night. Um, so like on U boats, AC 130Us, which are like the prototypical gunship that everybody knows from call of duty. That's when they're pretty much just talking about like, Hey, do you see, you know, the gunship? Like they, they know we're there or do you see, the guys who are clearly infilling or do you see like the next village over or are you ready for the attack that we're about to carry out or are you ready for the raid that's about to happen um much much more like tactical much more they're clearly just gonna fight because like why else are you awake at three o'clock in the morning for the most part um but during the day it, it is a lot of checking in bullshit and then there's like other sort of day-to-day life bullshit yeah i think those are those are some of my favorites uh because of of what we what we got to read you know after after you were doing the uh the legwork to get it with stuff like oh hey uh do you see the ship overhead be very careful all right got it hey do you have those pomegranates that i was asking for 
the other day. We need yeah. those for the convoy later, <laughs> like mm-hmm. stuff like that. Did you have any kind of, I, I mean, I, I assume while you're listening to it with, with a lot of the same stuff going on, like it kind of just like, like, like falls over, over you as you're hearing it and you're kind of looking for things that don't fit the same pattern when you're trying to be like supporting like if you're supporting an operation you're looking for hey we're getting ready instead of just you know radio check over kind of stuff yeah or i mean like i i give an example of this in the book like you right especially again during the day so my entire first appointment you could hear a dude say hey you do you have the truck ready right and that could be like a construction worker because like there's a lot of construction in afghanistan because everything's getting blown up all the time so they got to rebuild it uh, that could be a guy who lives in a village and there's one truck for the whole village. Uh, or it could be the dude who's like, yeah, this is the truck that has all the RPGs and like the Dushka and like, we're going to bring it over to this fight. And it's that sentence of like, do you have the truck ready is meaningless in and of itself. It's what surrounds that. Like, what does the guy respond with? Or does he say, do you have the truck ready? Also, do you have the pomegranates? You know, if he says that, oh, okay, yes, that's different. Versus if he's like, do you have the truck ready? You know, I got to go see my uncle. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going to assume that you got to go see your uncle and I don't really care. Um, but it is a lot of, yeah, a lot of, that's a good way to put it. It is just like sort of washing over you and you, when something strange is said or something slightly different or something relevant to whatever your op is, then your brain just sort of goes, oh, okay, let me pay attention to that. Yeah, I think that's something that kind of, sort of relates to the way like all source analysts sort of like cover intelligence obviously it's easier for us because we get to we get to read it in an office after after it's already come out but you're just kind of like filtering through sort of a lot of the the same stuff and you're looking for that special thing that'll make a good headline for your sort of nightly paper that you have to put out uh, that'll that'll sort of uh get the uh get the green suitors happy with you um I, I I wonder. Do you, do you have any like funny interactions that that stood out to you? Because I I remember we we had we had a few that we that we'd read about like guys not liking each other. Uh, I know there was one where uh, like a fighter called another fighter a Jew and was like, trying <laughs> trying to go after. Which that's a that's a big insult for for yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, stuff like that. <laughs> Um, there's definitely stuff like that. There's there's like a in the in the community I was in, there was this infamous story that everybody knew um because there was a recording of it. And it's basically like middle winter North Afghanistan, so very high, very, very cold, middle of the night or like three o'clock in the morning or something. And Dude and Dude B are talking and Dude is clearly in charge and he's telling his little minion boy what to do dude be he's like hey man go put the ied down the road like we know the americans are coming tomorrow go put the id down the road dude be the little minion guy is like i don't want it i I think it could wait and they go back and forth and go back and forth and go back and forth one dude saying go do it the other guy saying i don't really want to back and forth and finally the first guy just like no holds barred just like go do it you have to do it they're coming tomorrow we have to be ready for the attack and finally, it just in this like voice of defeat, the little guy just says, I, "No, brother, it's too cold to jihad," which like sounds like a comedy skit, and it is an honest to god thing that you could. Many of my friends will tell you is a real thing, um, because like, so we we would say this all the time. Like, if you don't want to do something, you're on a, you're supposed to go fly, and you're like, 
it's too cold to drive. Like, I don't want to do that thing. <laughs> Dude, that is great, man. I wish I had heard that. God, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't hear it in real time. And like, I don't even know at this point who someone did. And, you know, they, they can yeah. but um, there's, there, that's like the best one by far. Cause like, you can't top that. Um, there's, yeah, like dudes insulting other dudes, like calling them all sorts of names. Um, dudes like dick jokes for sure. Like, like making fun of dude having for a little dick. Um, dick jokes are universal. Dick jokes are absolutely universal. It doesn't matter what the language is. It doesn't matter what the, you know, like JTACs are making dick jokes. So like, why can't the Taliban make a dick joke? Right. Yeah. Um, there's some See, like it... pretty strange things. Like uh, there was, there was an op where there was concern that there was going to be a really big fight uh, because there was like a known sort of, not like a base, like the Taliban, they don't really have bases, but like a known supply and people depot and plane got overhead and they looked down and like yeah there's all these you know trucks and there's all these guns and all these rpgs and all this stuff and then there's also like five to ten taliban playing volleyball just like over a volleyball net in their man jammies just having a good old like cookout basically and everyone's worried that it's going to be some massive fight and it's just it's functionally a weapons depot and you can't shoot it there's a bunch of like women and children and stuff and like guys clearly just having fun playing a game. If there were no recording of a Talib saying it's too cold to jihad, I would still believe that that happened because that's just, that strikes me as the most Taliban thing. One of the most Pashtun Afghan things I could, I could ever possibly hear, especially based on the stuff that we have read after the fact. And, um, and so relatable for fellow Joes as well. Like, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I can see that. We've all felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Being stationed in North Carolina and you wake up and it's fucking 10 degrees outside. And, you know, some asshole is going to forget his long sleeve shirt. So, or his, you know, his pants or, you know, some article of clothes. So everybody's got to dress down. Like cigarettes only keep you so warm for so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of them aren't smoking and they're like on 10,000 foot mountain peaks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was curious, you know, because going through the book, there's, I mean, there, how do you prep for the role in, you know, in garrison? Is it something you can even do outside of, okay, Airman Fritz, you know, Dari, we're going to send you back to learn Pash 2. And just stay brushed up on it, and then you'll you'll learn the tricks of the trade in theater. How how does that work? Uh, in my case, it was a lot. It was pretty much that, right? So I graduated from my posture class Thanksgiving of 2010, and I deployed end of March of 2011, and basically the month of December after Thanksgiving, like. No one does anything, right? Everything shut down, planes don't fly. So I spent January through March learning how to fly because I hadn't actually done any flight training yet. And that that takes most of your time when you're doing it. Um, there's, you know, recordings and stuff. You listen and people tell you, like, you know, if dudes are talking about pomegranates, they're actually talking about blah, blah, blah. And if dudes are talking about this, they're actually talking about that. But the I, I i my understanding is that it's different in um on like the rj so like big picture like they have a much more robust schoolhouse in omaha at office air force base we had like a guy who taught us 
and it would just be like yeah pretty ad hoc like oh here's something interesting that you could listen to or someone else had flown a mission before me and was like oh yeah know about this thing but then yeah it's like you get there and you just do a lot of listening in real time and try and figure it out like i mean this goes back to the thing of like you know the generals in afghanistan didn't know what they were doing well like kind of no one knew what they were doing in a lot of cases <laughs> and also it just like the time didn't exist like someone spent a lot of time and money training me and they're like we, we need your physical body on a plane we don't have time to spend six months making you you know familiar with what the normal sort of area of operations version of Foshtu is like you'll figure it out I feel like the like you mentioned actually just now is that most of the Afghan war is fought with just simply filling slots that had to be filled uh, all the way up and uh, not really giving you adequate training for it, especially as a linguist. I can't imagine what it's like just in different, you know, dialects and actually hearing people over that awful, you know, squelch of the radio too has to be very <laughs> difficult to pick up. I mean, I, I found it was difficult on the MC 12 with the engines in your ear and, and, and the thing to even understand English, like half, like sometimes from people, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I can't, I can't fathom what that was like to have to listen to Pashto all day on, on board one of those things. So, uh, the intelligence, you know, that you're gathering, that you're listening to is that, I mean, is that immediately actionable being in that area? You said it's all very tactical missions, right? So, or, yeah. or, or does a lot of your stuff go off to, um, and a lot of the linguists I worked with were actually civilian contractors. I actually had a job where I like supervised like a whole room full of um, mm -hmm. civilian contractors for guardrail. And um, they would just send me, I would just proofread their stuff and and make sure it's edited nicely, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but was any of your stuff going through like a native speaker at some point, or is it all just on the fly? Like, Hey, this is the mission right now. None of this matters beyond like you said today, basically. And I mean, often it's like none of the matters past the next like five minutes. <laughs> yeah. So you got to be yeah, quick. No, huh? So like rivet joints, again, it's like there's multiple linguists. Um, there's also like stuff like the compass call, senior scout, like there's all these other planes. They're big planes, multiple people. And yeah, they can do like that sort of thing. But um, a direct support operator, which is like the fancy ass title for just a linguist on an AFSOC, it's just it's one person deep. Like you're the only person on the plane who knows that language you can't talk to anybody off the plane like it's, it's actually not physically possible so it's just what you say is true uh and that's what happens so like if you say yeah that dude's got a gun i heard him say he's got a gun cool that dude's got a gun that's your like proof that's it if you say he doesn't have a gun if there's visual proof okay that you know that's different like sensors trump all but if i say sensors like iffy and i say no no i heard that dude say he doesn't have a gun like okay that's it end of story it's like thinking back on it, it's wild because I was 22 and like on my first deployment, that was the power I had. And like like 98% yeah. of the time, like that's no power, right? It doesn't actually mean anything. Mm. But like some of the time it's my word and like that's it because we're the only plane there. We're the only, I'm the only person who can possibly hear anything that's being said. Um, yeah, it's a very strange, like the, the Dizzo position is a very strange position for linguists. Mm. I can totally get that too. Um, cause much in the same way, I, I think I, I can empathize with you there and that most of the time it's just, you feel like you're staring at rocks and doing nothing. And then one day, like the mission commander's like, you're sure of that, right? That signs is dead for it. And it's <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, everything, I mean, we were just talking about like our favorite Bucky's snacks, you know, that right. you watch and like, and all of a sudden it got real dark up in here. Okay. Very good. So yeah. All right. That's wild, man. 
And then, and then after you, you leave all that authority and come home and you better not have a fucking hot plate in your room. My God, can't trust <laughs> you guys with that. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I was lucky because like my training took so long that I, I got to live off base by the time I was deploying. Um, but for sure there's people who, yeah, like young guys I worked with who went straight to the pipeline and never had a delay. And like, yeah, they come back and live in a dorm after flying on gunships. How, how well did like the schoolhouse and pre-mission training prepare you to deal with like regional slang within the country or, or did that even factor in it? Like when, when, when you were in Kandahar, would it be different from going to like, um, Paktika or, you know, in, being in the Kabul area and, and were there any like, like very notable differences that you remember? Yeah, so I mean, if you go up north, it's predominantly Dari, and if there's Pashtu, it's like, this isn't a real thing, there's no such thing as like standardized Pashtu, but like, let's pretend that there were, that's what you would hear up north, it's like, we can call it, we'll just say it's Kandahari, like it's very, sort of, this is what it sounds like, and and that's what you listen to. When you're at DLI for Pashtu, you learn that there's functionally like Eastern and Western Pashtu. Those are the two like major dialects, right? So um, there are letters that are fun that are that sound completely different, right? So there's a letter that if you're on one side of the country, it's pronounced J, and if you're on the other side of the country, it's pronounced gay. And literally, like in a word, you would either hear a J sound or a G sound, and like that's it. There's another letter that on one side of the country is pronounced Sheen, and on the other side is pronounced Sheen. And so, like, in the middle of a word, you either hear a sh or a ch, and I don't know, you'll figure it out. That is taught very well, because, like, you have to know that, because if you listen to the news, and when you take the um, DLBT, right, this defense language proficiency test, this thing you have to take to prove that you're a good enough linguist, like, you have to be familiar with all that. But then when you get into, like, so, like, Kandahar versus Paktika, eh, whatever, right? But, like, Kandahar versus Kanar versus if i'm like real close to pakistan and dudes are speaking waziri, waziri is functionally a different language it is technically pashto but it is it may as well be a different language a friend of mine learned it because he did uh more strategic work and he's like yeah dude I, it took me like four extra months to figure out what these dudes were talking they switched every vowel like no word sounded the same um so my my first mission was over a place where the the way that you normally say yes in pashtu is literally just the word ho like technically the whole phrase is like ho, but you just say ho and it's kind of like yeah the my first mission the way guys there said yeah was yeah which sounds nothing like the word ho right they're not like they took they're speaking the same language and that was a dialect of like slang thing like you were talking about right if they then said a complete sentence of like yeah, I need to get the guns. Okay, it probably sounds similar to how I knew, but there were places where I would fly and I'd just be like, I'm, I'm useless here. Like, I can't do anything for you. How is that received? Um, Different communities, different ways, like gunship, gunships, U-boats. Um, when I was doing it, they were still pretty suspicious of Dizzo's. There was this like running joke that Dizzo wasn't worth their weight in ammo because like me i weigh 200 pounds that's like a lot of 105 rounds which is a lot of killing folk and like i'm probably not going to help you kill anybody is the thought um the gunship i was on my first deployment a little less 
dickish about it. Eventually it got to a point where like I explained to our mission commanders that this was the case. So we got, instead of us just being told like, Hey, you're going here, you better be useful. We could sort of be like, well, there's two options and like, I'm going to be useless in this place. Maybe I should go over here. Um, and I think it got a little better after my time where like maybe finally some of the people in, you know, leadership positions were sort of kind of understanding some of the details of Afghanistan. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, you're there and someone says, Hey, what are they saying? And you just say, I don't know, man, people get real mad. See, I feel that way. The way you feel about Waziri is how I feel about people from Louisiana. I, I can't understand a damn word. Any of them say it's, it shouldn't even be a state for hell's sake. Um, I was two things. One, I think it's hilarious you know, reading through the book that, you know, you, you go to DLI in 2008. So we're, let, let's say it's the earlier part of 2008. We'll round down and say we're six years into the war in Afghanistan and there's not a Pashto class, but there's a Dari class. T to me, as an analyst and obviously with a shitload of hindsight, it being 2024 now, how you as the linguist, does it, does it boggle the mind that we didn't have any sort of a Pashto course, or at least we were more prioritized. We were prioritizing more people to go through a Dari course than a Pashto, despite Pashto being clearly much more important at the time. Yeah, that I would say. So there was, so when I was there the first time, there was a Pashto course. It was 47 weeks. It had like a 70% washout rate or something. I don't know, like very greater than 50%. Absolutely. I don't know exactly how high. And even then, other people who didn't wash out and made it all the way to the end, a very small percentage of them passed the DLPT. So like technically they graduated, but they, they didn't pass, so they can't go do their job, right? Uh, caveat, not true, because people started being like, leadership was like, oh, well, I don't care if they didn't pass, we'll let them go do their job. But in theory, they shouldn't have been able to. Yeah, I so I got trained in Dari. I got selected to do Dari. I what probably would have happened to me is what happened to all of my other classmates. They went to Omaha and they technically learned how to fly in a rivet joint and then they did the job that Kyle did. That's what they did. They were linguists, Dari linguists, flying on MC12s and U28s as Tizos. Like that's what they did. That was their job. And they never used their language again, no matter how long they stayed in. Like that was it. So yeah, and like Dari is only spoken were predominantly spoken by the government of Afghanistan, of Afghanistan, which we were the puppet master of. So, like, why do you need to make linguists for that? Who are you going to spy on exactly? That, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, better than that, my best friend and I got sent to AFSOC. And when we got to AFSOC, their response was, what are you doing here? We can't use you. So, like, clearly, there was a huge disconnect between the personnel who were writing orders who said, oh, yeah, these two guys should go there. Because when we showed up, they were like, we can't use you. Like, what are you good for? There's no mission set for you because you don't speak Pashto. And we were like, well, we didn't know that. Like, we don't think should say in the matter. Someone just sent us here. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that, like, in if you want to go even further back, like, when 9-11 happened and, you know, a month later we're in, in Afghanistan, just, like, deep in the mountains, there was not a single, to my knowledge, in, like, the entire Department of Defense, there was not a single Pashtun linguist. And it's not like we didn't know that there were bad dudes in Afghanistan, right? Like we have Russian linguists despite never going into Russia. Or we have North Korean linguists despite like, what are we doing against North Korea? Right. And we have all these other languages, but like 
somehow the state of the intelligence apparatus in the 90s never thought to think, well, I guess there's this like place where they speak a language where a bunch of Al-Qaeda happens to be. Maybe that would be useful. Even if we just hired a native, like there was no one. They didn't have anything and they didn't really, they they do this thing where they, they'll build up and like, so by the time I was deploying, they had huge posture classes at DLI, like massive. And now they were 63 weeks long. So it takes even longer, but like people pass better. But by the time all those people graduated, no one was deploying anymore. Cause like we had withdrawn from our, our, you know, actual mission of fighting in Afghanistan and just become nation building. And like, so in the 2000 teens, 2015, like there were deserts flying, but like, I know them and they never did anything. And, and they're, they'll happily say that because, like, that's just we weren't fighting anymore. So you, you built up all these popular linguists and then you had to relanguage them. They had to go learn another yeah. language instead because they were no longer useful. Yeah, that's, so, yeah, that's, that's, the mind. that's that, it is wild too. But I think a lot of people don't realize what kind of goes into creating a program at DLI too. So, I mean, everybody's reactionary in the military. So obviously, nobody's going to even think to start a Pashto class until after we decide to invade Afghanistan. And then how many years does it take to find a people qualified to make a program in Pashto, people that can even speak Pashto in America that are willing to do it? It's like it would have to take years and years to even get a program going. And you must have been probably one of the early ones to come out of it then. I I think they to their credit, like I will forever back up DLI. Like DLI is an incredible institution. I oh, yeah, I sure. know when the first Pashtu course was, but like by the time I was there, definitely there have been many courses before me. It was nowhere near as robust as Korean's gonna be or Russian or Chinese or Arabic or anything. But they had they had done their damnedest to build anything. To my knowledge, it was the only like real Pashtu curriculum probably in the world for a non-native speaker. And maybe even for natives. Like if you think of the state of schooling <laughs> in Afghanistan. By the nature of just like how bad the country was and like the Taliban in the 90s, who's formally teaching anybody Pashto? They're not. They're teaching them Arabic in a madrasa, right? So to DLI's credit, they did their best. But but because I went there twice, I could compare my Dari curriculum and my Dari teachers to my Pashto curriculum. And like, no, Dari was so much better, even though it's technically a more useless language. Because to your point, it wasn't this reactionary thing. It had been there a long time. We knew that we needed at least people who could, you know, function in maybe more a diplomatic position, you know, with the government of Afghanistan or something like that. How many, if, if you know this, um, how many non-native Pashto linguists um, were in Afghanistan doing the same mission as you? Do you know that number by chance? Doing my mission? Can't imagine, yeah, can't imagine there's more than like a handful of you. Um... Deployed at any given point, probably like maybe a dozen between Bagram and Kandahar. Because they just like couldn't you total. I think when I was doing it, there might have been 50 like in the Air Force. So 50 in the world, I guess. Uh, and that's that's probably a high number. <laughs> it, may, it might be more like 25, 30. Um, there weren't like a I don't say this to, to, it doesn't mean anything. It's just like chance that it happened. But, but technically, like my best friend and I were the only two people in the entire military who were trained the way we were because we both, because we'd gone to Dari and to Pashtu. We were the only two people who did that who flew in Asok. There were a few people who did that on the RJ, but we were the only two in like the history of the Air Force who got trained to do that for Asok. So we were the only two who could like theoretically fly anywhere in Afghanistan. 
dialects and stuff notwithstanding and like understand anything anyone was saying versus a lot of the people that I, who were deploying when I was were like Farsi linguists or Dar linguists who had not been formally trained in Pashto and they had gotten like a really shitty abbreviated four month class in Pashto and they were doing my job but like woefully undertrained and you know they suffered a lot because of that but yeah 25 30 maybe wild i i i want to i want to kind of look at take kind of a, a personal look for you so what so while i was in country i felt like things were going really well but i was with more of a tactical unit that was you know conducting operations similar to what you were doing kyle and and zach kind of kind of caught on a little earlier than me that something that there, something was spoiling the punch bowl and it wasn't it wasn't quite right i kind of i kind of woke up to that when i started contracting i want to i want to ask you sort of how how did you view the war was going while you were in country did that change from sort of like the first few months to the last few months and um uh did did it change when you came home uh, so my first deployment, I was rah rah gung ho. We're doing something good. We're doing something right. I'm gonna help save people. All these wonderful twenty two year old, well raised in the South American boy thoughts. Um, I was fairly quickly disillusioned from like what my mission set was for sure because of all the things we've been talking about, um, and a lot of the repetition of it. My first deployment was like a, like three and a half months, maybe three months in a week or something like that. Like, let's just say three months. By the end of it, I was, I was pretty fucked in the head, but I couldn't have told you why. Like, I I had this sense that everything was wonky and something was spoiling the punch bowl, but I I couldn't really articulate it. Um, and then I was back for three months. But I just spent a month of that in a language class in Omaha. But but in that time, I sort of got to talk to the people who'd come before me, and they had a very good idea of what was playing the punch bowl, and like they really had a good understanding of what was all completely wrong with the war. And so between talking to them and like having time to think about what I went through, and then by the time I my second appointment, I was just like, this is such a wild waste of time and effort, and like most of the people who I worked with at some point wanted to kill themselves because of the nature of the work we did. And it's like, for what? Like we didn't, how many HVTs did we roll up? And then um, about a year later, roll up the exact same HVTs, right? Like how many provinces did we recapture? And then about six months later, it turns out they had it. Like how much went into the push in Marja? And oh, by the way, it was supposed to take 30 days and a year later, Supreme Commander General McChrystal was calling it a bleeding ulcer, right? Like, you can't unknow those things once you know them, but the, the system doesn't teach you any of that stuff, obviously. Um, so by the end, of, I mean, I, I stopped deploying because of mental health issues that were, uh, you know, in large part because this work was so pointless and because there was just this, like, intransigent nihilism that came with it because it was like, well, even if I did my job really well, People still died. I didn't do really well. Okay, people died. Did it matter? Why am I like killing all these people? To what end? Like rolling up HVTs that it turns out is because like a dude in Village A heard his cousin talk about a guy who lived in Village B who said that dude in Village C knew a Taliban once. Okay, cool. We better go get that guy. He's real important. 
Uh, no, of course he's fucking not important. Um, so yeah, I, I I would say by the end of my second deployment, I still thought that like maybe there is a purpose behind all of it, like because because it would be really hard to say all of this is completely meaningless. Like I don't think I could have accepted that even if you had proven it to me, because then I just really would have gone off the deep end. Um, but definitely like by the time I got out, so May of 2013, it was just like, well, this was an absolute clusterfuck of nonsense. And then lo and behold, had 10 more years to go after that. <laughs> um, nearly 10 more years of con 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 continued war effort. And, and, you know, all these years later, too, is, is you talk about how how bad it was. And that's in 2013. Man, I was just graduating DLI, dude. And I was like, <laughs> you know, ready to go. Oh, I'm going to Afghanistan. Interesting. That's interesting. And then I, I immediately started thinking the exact same way you did. And you kind of start to devolve into this nihilistic view of the war, I think, like you mentioned. And and what's crazy is, like you mentioned, I, I don't think that I'm ready to accept what a waste of fucking time that was. <laughs> like, yeah. I know it was. I don't like to admit it to myself at times. You know what I mean? It hurts to think about it at times. I don't know. We, we, we've been talking about it for two fucking years and so it's still um, tough to, to swallow. Is, is it what, Ian? Have you read the Afghanistan papers? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. That when those came out, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it was I all only just read it like a couple of months ago, and I thought I had like processed and accepted, and then that really was like, I like it's stuff that you kind of knew, right? Especially with the work you guys did, like you saw the wild money and like the ridiculous bullshit even more than I did, and but seeing him just like lay it out in crystal clear interviews really just solidified and internalized yeah it was just a complete bumblefuck way for a bunch of people to get rich and a bunch of people to die well the good news is you didn't have to see it on the news when you got home <laughs> yeah yeah that's true man but it's like, what's the point in knowing, right? What's the point in knowing it's all bad when nobody will act on it or fix it? It's just, that it's is like watching it's, the train yeah. just crash into something, knowing you can divert it. You can pull the lever and nobody else has to die. Yeah, <laughs> but nobody's going to pull the lever, you know? Like, it's insane. I don't know. I would have said, like, you can't pull the lever. Like, there's just, there's too many, you know, powers. Like, there's too many Lockheeds and Boeings and Raytheons and... All the other, you did contracting work as an analyst, like how many different fucking companies are paying dudes really good money? And like, I'm not going to knock anybody who took the money and ran. Take it. Like, someone's going to take that money. May as well be you. But then that like contributes to the, you can't pull that lever, man. <laughs> because like, there's way too many people who are invested in that lever or invested in that train, like continuing on. Because the system just got built up. I think, I think reading Afghanistan papers really, it was like probably 2003. Maybe 2005, it probably could have been stopped, actually. Like, there wasn't enough infrastructure built to make all the money on the contracts. The government, you know, of Afghanistan hadn't quite gotten as polluted and messed up. But after that, there was no stopping it. No way. Because, like, what was the last... I mean, so, okay, you got out of D-Line in 2013. So when did you deploy it? 2013, 2014? To Afghanistan? So I, I started doing remote mission pretty quick. So I, I was doing remote missions in 2014. I deployed in 2015. And then I deployed as a contractor in 2016. And I could I took about six months of that before I realized, oh, my God, no, no more. 
But I mean, what was even happening? Like there weren't. Yeah, nation building that was really shitty. Nation like, building in, in quotes. What is yeah. your job there? Like nothing. Yeah, not really. Not much of anything. Now we did have we did have to work with special forces uh, when I was a TISO on counterterrorism operations. So there were still counterterrorism operations going on with those high value targets. You know, I wouldn't even like counterterrorism, dude. Like, what are they terrorizing? <laughs> like, and also, what are you countering? Yeah, they're terrorizing us for being there for the most yeah, part, like, or people related to us. Them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, it was always funny. Like you mentioned, like rolling up a high value target, and then a year later rolling up the same one. What made me mad was the ones that I would find, and then they would go out, you know, that night to go round them up, and the guy decides to like shoot it out with the guys that come there when all they had to do was just like. Hey, man. And they'd let him out like a week later. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, in in Bad Dude's defense or like like Whitlock talks about this in Afghanistan papers, they're going to lock him, lock him up in a black site and electrocute him for like the better part of the year. Uh, so that's probably also true. That, that very real just, possibility. Yeah, right. That's tr- that's a good point. That That is a good point. But I mean, for most of those guys, especially in 2015, they were just like, hey, man, stop being a bad and just let him go again. Like they, they didn't really do much to it. No. So we could have used you in 2015 on to, you know, use the Daria to spy on the Jaroa officials that were corrupt as shit. <laughs> That's where, yeah, they, 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 all the darling was could have been, you know, but, but again, like they're not, I don't know a single, I mean, I, I have friends who I know were, who were darling was were in my class who did the Dari mission on a rivet joint. I like, I never heard them talk about it. Because they all went to the Tizzo thing. They talked about the Tizzo thing all the time. Like, of course, because it's like that, you know, the the sort of ethics of it aside, it's sexy. It's cool, right? Like, but like, I never heard any of them talk about what what came of them listening to anything in Dari. Because my intuition says fucking nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, from from what I gather reading the book, you will pr- you probably used Dari more than they ever did when you used it the one time to realize that group was talking in Dari and not past you. Yeah, for I mean for that one mission, and then other other times where it's like, yeah, if I'm listening to talking to Dari, like they're probably not doing anything, like or I probably don't care, or or if I do, like fine, but yeah, absolutely, because because I don't even, I mean, river joints are very strange because they're such a big picture, like just sort of, you know electromagnetic spectrum vacuums so who knows what they could have picked up but even let's say they picked up every conversation the government in afghanistan was having what are you gonna do with it we already know they're corrupt as fuck <laughs> we already know that like dude a is giving money to dude b giving money to dude c like we're not stopping it so what does it matter and this is a, a complete sidebar, but it's in the book, so I'm going to ask to verify. Is Omaha really that awesome? Dude, it sounds Omaha, like you had a great fucking time in Omaha. Omaha, at least Omaha 2011, and my understanding, you can have that good time, dude. It's not there anymore, or it might have... So I don't drink anymore. This was a, a non-alcoholic beer, um, because as the book very in great detail shows, I did not do well with alcohol as a person. But if you like alcohol, if you like scotch... There's a bar in Omaha, Nebraska that had the largest private scotch collection outside of Scotland called the Dundee Dell. It was amazing. I did a mega scotch tasting there. You got 10 scotches. All of them were at least 25 years old. One of them was a 1964 Black Bow Moore. It's like 20 something hundred dollars a bottle, $200 a dram. It was just part of the tasting. It was, yeah, a lot of really good food. Maybe the greatest gay bar in the entire Midwest. 
Uh, such a good time. The Max, highly recommend. Pretty sure it's still standing. It's got to still be standing. I hope it survived COVID. Yeah, <laughs> um, Omaha's a good time, dude. I people are like it. It's rough because it's to get anywhere from Omaha sucks, right? Like Chicago's the next nearest place, and that's like three hours, or like St. Louis, or like. But you, you can make Omaha fun, yeah. I'm not trying to get shot, so I'm going to avoid St. Louis. <laughs> I've I've like driven through St. Louis twice. I don't know anything about St. Louis, but I've never I've never heard too much good about it. So. So we like to ask sometimes, you know, um, since you were there and you saw it and you have a, you're allowed to have an opinion on it. Um, where do you, what do you see, uh, the future of Afghanistan? We, 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 we've kind of moved to talking a lot about that. We'll invite, you know, guests on that are, you know, analysts or, you know, they, they work for big think tanks and stuff like that. But, um, what, what do you, you know, and they have a very broad picture of things. What, what do you, what do you see for the country in the next maybe five, 10 years? Five ten, Taliban uh, mm, like solidifies their power and just continues fucking everything up. I pass that. I will allow for the the like potential hope. There are a lot of um, really really rare minerals and resources in Afghanistan. So like, it's probably like a trillion dollars of rare earth minerals is the last estimate I knew. And that was like pre COVID inflation. So who the fuck knows what it is now, but um, there is a lot of stuff there. There's a fair amount of copper, which like the rest of the world has managed to just completely strip mine. So the issue becomes like, it's still the great game. If you guys are familiar, China's the one who would take all that stuff, right? Cause they're right there and they literally share a border and it wouldn't be that hard. We, as a global hegemon, are not all that interested in letting China accrue a bunch of really important, valuable minerals for the advancement of superior technologies. But we left, and we're probably not going to go to war with China over that. So I I don't think this will happen, and I, I don't like have hope for it because it's just like a way to be disappointed. But um, I think that it's possible that prob- probably after the next five to ten years, there could be... There could be a development of the country surely, for, surely just just for other countries to be able to you know access resources, which is basically what the entire history of fucking with poor countries is, and that's fine. And ultimately, I think that would be a good thing because it would weaken the total power of the Taliban, which as of now is very very bad for many many people in Afghanistan. The other, but the flip side to that is that we know that it's more peaceful now than it ever was when we were there. We know that fewer people dying on a daily basis. We know that women and young girls have like basically lost all their rights again and they're not going to be able to get education and all these things, but they're also not getting shot a lot. And their husbands and their brothers and their sons are not all getting shot quite as often. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that that peace continues and another civil war doesn't break out. I don't know. I try not to think about Afghanistan a lot outside of the book and having to do stuff like this. I don't know. Smarter people than me have told you guys, like, do they think another sectarian outbreak is going to happen or something like that? But it seems like the Taliban's like got a pretty good stranglehold and that they'll just keep keeping on. Given the Taliban's transition to uh, meth trafficking and the discovery of copper in Afghanistan, I'm just waiting to hear about some redneck getting rolled up and like, fucking kundus trying to strip copper out of the back of a toyota or some shit <laughs> that'd be good I, they're expanding the meth out of heroin yeah 
yeah so the talent me the taliban's pretty i mean they're pretty strict on the whole no heroin thing but we'll use it to support um our our insurgency um from what i've seen people like to boast that like all the heroin production or all the opium cultivation in Helmand's gone. That's not true. It's probably been drastically reduced, but there's also been a lot of open source reporting that the Taliban is just moving to meth. Mm. Um, as any good drug kingpin does, you just, <laughs> you uh, diversify your product. I mean, now that you say it, it makes sense. Cause like, why make heroin when there's fentanyl? Like, yeah. just know, right. Like everyone just wants fentanyl, whether they know it or not now. So just giving the customer what they want, man. Yeah, Basically yeah. economics. Good, good old-fashioned Taliban economics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, well, Ian, man, this I think this has been a pretty cool conversation, kind of uh kind of seeing seeing behind the curtain on a on sort of another aspect of the the war that shaped us so much. I I wanted uh, as always, we we give our guests the opportunity to have the last word um you know we'd we'd love love to have you plug your book a little better than we are we're 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 bad we're bad at chilling in general kyle kyle has a book that just came out that he just doesn't know how to sell so hopefully you're you're better than him go ahead uh tell tell the the listeners about your book and any other any other thoughts or uh, ideas or extreme ideologies you want to plug floor is yours <laughs> um i'm i'm pretty bad at shilling to uh much to my publicist chagrin but um the book is it is a memoir about a kind of dumbass uh becoming linguist and listening to taliban talk a lot uh it however has a lot of I think, and other people have said, interesting thoughts about language and how important learning languages is and how learning language can change your life. And if you're like remotely interested in that, that's a cool part of the book. Um, There are also, if you, like it seems all of us are, are vaguely disillusioned or even more than vaguely disillusioned about the military in Afghanistan and probably U.S. imperialism writ large, there's a really, really good ranting towards the end of the book um, about those things and, and many other things that... Uh, if nothing else can maybe help some other upset, angry, annoyed people who don't know how to put exactly all of their feelings into words that, that was the, you know, probably most effective part of the book is like, okay, well, how do you, how do you put all these years of sort of boiling feelings down into some sort of semblance of logical thought? And that's my only hope for the book is that if there's anybody out there who still can't figure all that shit out, you know, there's other books that are better, like plenty of them, but this book is very specific and there are a lot of people who went through this very specific thing. Um, and the hope is that it could help any of them figure out exactly what it is that they're thinking. Other than that, my extreme ideology would be everyone should read more if you can. Reading's hard, takes time, and there's other more interesting stuff in the world in theory, except there's not. Books are the best. Um, <laughs> I, if you want to, if you want proof of that, I have two book to lists on my website of all the books I read last year and the year before. And if you're looking for book recommendations, you can check those out and, or just email me. Cause I love to talk about books. They're my favorite thing in the world, maybe outside of my puppy. So. Awesome. Ian, thank you so much in the book. Uh, you didn't, you didn't say the name of it, but it's oh, what right. the Taliban yeah. told me. He is just as bad as you. I'm so bad at shilling, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the Taliban told me. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, you can get it from your website and get on Amazon, um, wherever books are sold, right? 
<laughs> so, so, so. Whatever books are sold, I, that, that would be my other last thing is uh, if you can support a local bo- local bookshop instead of Amazon, mm-hmm. do that. Local bookshops are wonderful institutions. They're really good for their communities. And they're also like all small businesses often struggling in the world. Um, if you can't get it on Amazon, fine, cool. Give Bezos your money. But if you can get it at a bookshop, do that. All right, Ian, thanks for coming on. I will go ahead and yeah. bookshop instead of Amazon. Do that. Local bookshops are wonderful institutions. They're really good for their communities. And they're also like all small businesses often struggling in the world. Um, if you can't get it on Amazon, fine. Cool. Good, 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 good. All right. Yeah.